The scripture reading today is taken from Luke 24, 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty deed, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and our how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to part to believe that all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he, he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they were found, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. That they told, Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he is known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Megan. It's a, a pleasure to be here this morning to bring God's Word to you. My name is Jonathan, in case you have not met me. I'm one of the elders at Christ City Church. Um, we are launching, as Brand said, into our fall series. And uh, while we're doing this, we are doing a mini-series called Encounters with Jesus. And last week, we looked at Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. This week, we, we talk about Jesus' encounter on the road to Emmaus. Uh, although in keeping with the naming convention, we really should call this Jesus' encounter with Cleopas and his buddy. Um, anyway, this mini-series is a way of reminding ourselves of the transforming power of Jesus as we head back into 1 Corinthians. Uh, before we dive into this, let me pray. I need help, and so do you. Father God, we praise you, for you are sovereign. We praise you. For you are mighty to save, as we learned this morning. Father, I need your help. I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would give me the words to say in exactly the, word, the, the way that you would want me to say it, that you would soften and open all of our hearts, that we might receive your word, and that we might be transformed 
uh, as these two were. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, we have heard lots of news about the passing of our beloved Queen Elizabeth II and her tremendous life. And amongst the many stories that have emerged, there's this one charming story about how she once pranked some American tourists at her summer castle in Balmoral. Richard Griffin, a bodyguard for the Queen, recalls this time that he went for a walk with Her Majesty on the Balmoral grounds. And quite unusually, the pair happened upon a couple of American tourists who clearly had not recognized the Queen. Griffin recalls, and I quote, it was clear that they had not recognized the Queen. The American gentleman was telling the Queen where they came from, where they were going next, and where they'd been in Britain. And I could see it coming. And sure enough, the American gentleman said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? And she said, well, I live in London, but I have a holiday home just the other side of the hills. One of the tourists, trying to make small talk, of course, asked the Queen how often she came to visit Balmoral. And Her Majesty uh, said, coming for more than eight, she said that I've been coming here for more than 80 years since I was a little girl. The bodyguard continued, and you could see the cogs ticking. He said, well, if you've been coming here for 80 years, you surely must have met the queen. And as quick as the flash, the queen said, well, I haven't, but Dickie here meets her regularly. <laughs> the hiker then asked the queen to take a photograph of him and the bodyguard. And notably, they also got a picture with her majesty. Griffin concluded, well, we never let on, and we waved goodbye, and then Her Majesty said, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photos to his friends in America, and hopefully someone tells him who I am. <laughs> well, today, we are offered a very similar perspective. We get to be a fly on the wall as Jesus reveals himself to two unsuspecting disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it is charming to see how this narrative is written. You see, we get to see how the two disciples gain clarity, gain, gain certainty as they move from doubt to certainty concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Luke's aim, you might recall, in his gospel is to convey an orderly account to his readers so that they might have certainty concerning the things that were taught. He writes that actually in chapter 1, verse 3. This passage is no different. We get to experience the journey from doubt to certainty as these two encounter Jesus, as Jesus opens the scriptures to them, and in the breaking of bread. And so my aim this morning is quite simple, to expound on this very story so that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so that you will have certainty concerning the things that you will be taught this year, especially as we dive into 1 Corinthians. My outline this morning is as follows. Number one, we'll look at Jesus amidst our despair. Jesus amidst our despair and its application. Trust Jesus in the midst of your despair and confusing circumstances. Number two, we'll look at uh, how Jesus asks critical questions. 
how Jesus asked critical questions and its application. Let Jesus and his word reshape the way you interpret your circumstances. Number three, of course, these two recognized Jesus. Jesus was recognized and how we too can experience that burning truth of Jesus' presence. And fourth, we'll look at Jesus' resurrection proclaimed and how we ought to proclaim the immortal witness. There's a lot to go through, but it is a lot of fun. So let's let's dive in. Number one, Jesus and Mr. Despair. The, the narrative begins at the tail end of a very confusing time. And here's the context. The context is that Jesus had just been crucified and buried. And to his disciples, you must imagine that this must have been devastating. Their hope that Jesus was the promised Messiah had been dashed against the rocks of death, sealed up in a tomb. These thoughts of disappointment and grief were mixed with seemingly tall tales that they heard. Apparently some women had gone to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away. Then they came back and talked about what they saw. But verse 11 in the same chapter sums it up well about how that was received. It says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. And then there's Peter, right? We kind of know Peter as a bit of a, an impulsive kind of disciple. Well, he went and he saw the same thing. And so there's just a lot of confusion. Like, do we believe him? Do, who do we believe? So Cleopas and his buddy, they're walking along the road and you can just imagine that they've got all of these questions swirling in, the, in their heads as they've come out of this meeting. What, is, what should we believe? Who to believe? What does this all mean? Well, they live some seven miles away from Jerusalem in a suburb called Emmaus. And so they began walking and talking with each other. Verse 13 and 14. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And I think we can relate you know, we can relate to the mood, certainly. They were sad, as it says in verse 17. They were overwhelmed, preoccupied. I'm sure you have been preoccupied and you've walked, taken a walk. I've been a, a pastor and a counselor long enough to know that when people are overwhelmed, they tend to process circumstances through a grid of understanding, right? They, they try to work through the questions of why and what if and what does this mean? But we are social creatures. We are created to be in relationships with people. And so we don't usually just process these things alone. We check with friends. We go for walks with friends. And we talk about it to ask the questions like this. Is my view of reality true? Am I interpreting these facts correctly? Are my fears and doubts, these feelings, appropriate for my circumstances? In other words, we long for certainty. We long to know that we are living according to what is true, good, and beautiful. And we attempt to find this in the exchange of ideas with one another. And so I find it really amazing that Jesus approaches these two in the most human 
of ways. Verse 15 and 16. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Isn't that comforting? That in the midst of despair, of processing our thoughts, of trying to make sense of reality, that Jesus himself comes alongside. He walks alongside them. Now, before we move on, we ought to just kind of state a couple of encouraging things about even just this little statement. First, this statement tells us that, well, Jesus is not dead. He's not in the grave. He is risen from the dead indeed. We will be diving into 1 Corinthians, as I've said a number of times now, and one of those chapters is 1 Corinthians 15, and we will talk about the, the massive theological implications of the resurrection and why it is so important. But suffice it for now that we worship a risen, living Savior. He is not dead. And his rule far surpasses even the long-reigning monarchs. His throne and his dominion is forever. Second thing about this little statement that about Jesus coming alongside them is that actually Jesus is not a ghost. It's not just some sort of spiritual apparition. He's flesh and blood in a resurrected body. He does human things like he is walking. He listens and talks too. And his means of comfort is to draw near. The third thing we can learn is that well, Jesus, just the fact that Jesus draws near at all. As we are processing through these trials and difficult parts of our lives, as these two on the road to Emmaus are trying to wrestle with the difficult circumstances that they find themselves in, Jesus draws near. Psalm 34, 18 reminds us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. Now, the text does say that though Jesus had drawn near, they were kept from recognizing him. Verse 16b, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, commentators note that this is a divine passive. That's just a fancy way of saying that God kept them from recognizing Jesus. God kept them from recognizing Jesus. Now, you might ask why. Why did Jesus keep them from recognizing him? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Uh, I think that if Jesus had simply appeared to them visibly, in other words, that they would recognize them, it would not have built their faith. You see, he clearly wanted to teach them from the scriptures concerning his death and resurrection. And he continued to reveal the truth to them by his word, by speaking. He wanted them to see how the prophesied Messiah must suffer. That these traumatic events surrounding Jesus are actually part of God's plan for deliverance. You see, they, he wanted them to see that they had not seen the end of their hope, but rather it was just the beginning. And he wanted them to see, not by recognizing him, but from Scripture. From his word. I think that actually, if he had made himself recognizable, that while his appearance would have been stunning, it would not have built their faith. Their understanding, you see, of the Messiah was limited. 
they still had in their mind a Jesus that is a political messiah, one that would finally liberate the uh, the uh, Israelites from uh, from the oppression of the Romans. And Jesus wanted to show them something deeper. And that required time. It required understanding. It required his word, his revelation. And in this is actually a, a very important theological point. Put simply, God's created order is one of revelation. He declares what is true, good, and beautiful by his word. God spoke creation into existence. In other words, objective truth and reality, they're not determined by empirical evidence. We can verify it empirically, but it is not determined. It is rather spoken into existence and revealed to us. And yet, God did not make us robots. We are thinking, responsive creatures. We are curious. We are... Uh, we love to discover, to investigate. If you're not convinced, just look at any kid and you'll see this trait. And part of the genius of Luke's narrative is that we get to be this fly on the wall. We get to see the whole story. The reader sees true reality. And we get to see these two respond to Jesus, growing their confidence, growing their certainty and their faith as they do so. Now, while we can play this sort of role of observer to be this fly on the wall, Luke's point is actually that we learn, that we too can build our confidence and our faith by what he reveals to us. You see, in our trials, when we go through tough times in life, our temptation is to live by sight and not by faith. We want to see the ease of seeing Jesus in a situation when God asks us to believe, to trust that he is in a situation by faith. Let me say that again. We want the ease of seeing Jesus in a situation, of recognizing Jesus visibly when God asks us to believe by faith that he is in a situation. And that, my friends, is the faith journey. It's this constant wrestling between what we know from Revelation, what we, what we read, what we confess, and how we actually live. We walk forward in faith. We trust him. We believe that what God says is true. Yet we look back and we are reaffirmed that indeed he is, and our faith grows. And so Jesus draws near to these two by engaging them in a journey of discovery this joy of discovery. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus walking alongside Cleopas and his friend and walking with them so that they might see truth, gently expanding their worldview, gently giving them personal revelation. And he does this by asking questions, which brings us to our second point. Jesus asks critical questions. And in so, he asks three questions. He asks uh, questions to enter into their conversation, to understand them, and to bring the truth. 
first question is basically, what are you guys talking about? Verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Cleopas gives the answer in verse 18 pretty quickly. He says this, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Clearly, this was the news of the day. To be in Jerusalem and not know about Jesus and his crucifixion is like being in London right now and not knowing that the queen is dead and Charles is now king. Second question he asks is, what things? Verse 19. Jesus, of course, knew what things. I mean, he is the subject of these things. (laughs) But he asks the questions to draw them out. And we can learn from this example as well. As we walk alongside others, we can ask questions to draw out people's understanding of their circumstances. Well, Cleopas wastes no time to explain verses 19 and 20. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed, and were before God and all the people. Notice that Cleopas introduces the subject very quickly. He says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And then he offers his interpretation based on his limited worldview. To them, he was a prophet. He was mighty indeed and in word. Now, to be clear, Jesus was a prophet. He was a man from God. In fact, he was prophesied haha, to be the prophet, capital P, in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But he was so much more than just a prophet. He was so much more than just a man from God. He is God himself incarnate. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the prophesied Messiah. You see how Jesus, uh, you see how you can see that he, he has both the subject and the interpretation. And so we actually get, if we read on, we actually get another fact. The chief priests and the rulers had delivered Jesus of Nazareth up to be condemned to death and crucified him. That's the fact. Interpretation, verse 21a. But we had hoped that he was one to redeem Israel. Aha! Cleopas and his friend now reveal the reason for their sadness. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Their hopes had been dashed. Now, I think both you and I can relate to this. All of us have had hopes dashed. Ever hoped for something so badly and then had your hopes dashed? Maybe it's that promotion that you wanted and then got passed over. Or maybe it's that guy or girl that you've had your eye on for a long time and yet you've got gotten rejected. Collectively, we've had hopes. All of us had hopes back in February of 2020 and then this little thing called COVID happened. (laughs) But more accurate to the context, how often... Do we put our hopes in a new leader? In a new political leader? You see, humanity, as as humans, we yearn for certainty in our circumstances. We yearn for 
our circumstances to reflect what we think is true, good, and beautiful. And we place our hopes in this leader to alter, to redeem the circumstances to this ideal that we have in our heads and our hearts. And that's exactly what Cleopas and his friend was expressing. They had hoped that Jesus was the one who would finally redeem and rescue Israel from the oppression of the Romans. They, they did recognize him as some sort of Messiah, but the Messiah that they had conceived in their head. And so as all of these facts are coming in, all of these circumstances are coming in, they do not know how to interpret them. There is much confusion. The confusion was this, when the chief priests and the and um, uh, when the chief priests, sorry, lost my place here. <laughs> when, um, when the chief priests and rulers had delivered Jesus up to be crucified, they were confused because it was one of their own that had crucified and murdered. Jesus. He's now dead. How could he redeem Israel? Interpretation? Well, then he must not be the one. Verse 21b. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day, the text continues, since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive, some of those who were with them went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. It's funny that Luke makes a point, it's interesting rather, that Luke makes a point of noting that the disciples knew that it was the third day, but their unbelief and their narrow interpretive grids would not allow them to properly categorize these circumstances. They were looking to the circumstances for certainty, rather than the promise and character of God. And so Jesus brings his third question, and with it, a mild rebuke. You see, Jesus, still incognito here, says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said this not to shame them, but to open their eyes to the greater reality that the scriptures reveal. You see, these two disciples were hopeless and despairing for only one reason, unbelief. If indeed they actually understood and believed the prophecies about the Messiah's sufferings, and if they actually had the faith that Jesus would rise from the dead and would reign as the risen Savior, then his death would not bring about hopelessness. For they would know with certainty that death was no longer the final word. They would know with certainty that Jesus is the Christ, that he is indeed the Messiah. And actually, the scriptures do declare both his needing to suffer and his resurrection to be true. 
we don't have a lot of time to dive into this, but let me just highlight three possible verses that we could go into the Old Testament that de de declare this. Genesis 3.15, for instance. God said to the serpent, right after the fall, says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your, your head and you shall bruise his heel. That last part indicates that the Messiah would have to suffer. We read Isaiah 53 last week. Isaiah 53.10 continues and says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Again, it talks about how the Messiah would have to suffer, would have to be crushed, and yet he would be resurrected. For how would um, how would he see his offspring? How shall he prolong his days if he was not resurrected? Psalm 16.10 also talks about this. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. There are many, many scriptures that speak about the prophesied Messiah and what had to happen in order for him to redeem humanity. And the application is this. We should be in the scriptures. We ought to know the scriptures, to be a part of a community of believers as we seek to understand the scriptures. It's why here at Christ City, we preach exegetically through the Bible. Here's another application though. When we walk beside others, when people offer to tell us their stories, their circumstances, offer a listening ear. But do more than that. Listen carefully for the interpretation of their circumstances. How are they seeing things? And then offer more than just a therapeutic voice. Instead, bring them to Christ. Help them to interpret their circumstances in light of Scripture and give them the categories by which to process. Encourage them to believe the provisions offered in Christ, that God is sovereign, that he is in control, that he does forgive sin, that he does comfort us. Point them, in other words, to the gospel. Help them to recognize Jesus amidst their circumstances. And that is our third point. Jesus recognized and experiencing the burning truth of Jesus' presence. You see, Jesus' words must have both convicted and encouraged these two disciples. Conviction in how far they, they have actually been from reality and yet encouraged by the clarity and reassurance. Can you imagine the divine author himself walking beside you, interpreting the scriptures concerning himself to you? They were encouraged by the grace of that moment. And his nearness would have been evident in the revealing of scripture. And so, not wanting this to end, these two disciples they urge him. They invite this stranger into their home. In fact, the text says that they strongly urged him to do so, verses 28 and 29. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now 
far spent, and so he went in to stay with them. Jesus had acted as if he were going farther to test them to see how they would respond. Last week, we learned about Zacchaeus and how when people meet Jesus, they are given opportunities to respond. And this is much the same thing. These two disciples were given an opportunity to respond. Jesus sought to see if they wanted more, and they did. And they invited him into their home. And so the stranger, whom we know as the resurrected Jesus, but they don't, he goes in and he dines with them. And he blesses the food, verses 30 and 32. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That scene would have been reminiscent of the Last Supper. And isn't it really interesting that it is this very human act of eating and breaking bread. It's in this that Jesus opens their eyes. Their now growing faith had become sight. And in recognizing Jesus, they not only would have recognized him as the Jesus they knew come back to life. They would have recognized him and understood him now that Jesus indeed was the Messiah from the scriptures. It all made sense now. Notice how they actually emphasized their time with Jesus on the road. That's what they identify as this burning thing in their hearts and not that they had finally recognized him. That's the emphasis in the text. All these pieces had come together. They were convicted in their hearts of their limited perspective. They sensed the presence of the Lord through his word, through the interpretation of scripture. And now they finally recognized that indeed the Lord is in their circumstances and that he is risen. And so we shift to the fourth and final scene, our last point, Jesus' resurrection proclaimed. As soon as they recognized Jesus, they made haste to return to Jerusalem. And unlike Zacchaeus, perhaps they had long legs, like Brandt. They just hightailed it back. Um, <laughs> he just hightailed it back to, to go and see the 11, verses 33 to 35. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. What a dramatic scene. You see, to their amazement, they found other witnesses who had also seen Jesus. You can just imagine as they're hearing about Simon, uh, about the story of Simon seeing uh, Jesus, that they're just on the edge of their seats waiting to tell their story. They were waiting to share with certainty their own experience and to say, the Lord is risen indeed. Well, 
This is the gospel, my friends. That the Lord is risen. That Jesus is the Messiah. That our sins are forgiven. That he is near. And more so, this story tells us that those who trust him and call him Lord are children of God. That we are redeemed. We are indeed rescued. Despite our circumstances that we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that is worthy of much proclamation, just as we saw this morning in the baptism videos. Now in closing, you might wonder how such a passage applies to us. And surely the application is not that we should just expect Jesus himself to walk alongside us next time we're walking on the Arbutus Greenway or the next time we take a drive out to a suburb called Richmond, or the next time we are in despair, do we expect a stranger to just walk alongside us? And in some sense, um, well, in, in some sense, actually there is some rightness, there's some correctness to this. Because Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has given us something better. His helper, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us and his church. So while we may not expect a stranger to walk up alongside us, we actually have something better. We have his Holy Spirit and we have his church. John fourteen twenty six. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The point is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And he reminds you of the things that Christ said. And he, like Jesus, opens the scriptures to us so that we might have certainty concerning the things that we were taught. He gives us the eyes to see, insight into his word, faith to believe. But not only that, you see, God has also given us his church, the body of Christ, who acts as Christ's hands and feet. Who indeed is physical in presence. So we can walk alongside another and by the power of the Holy Spirit, ask questions. We can bring the truth of Christ to bear upon our brother or sister's heart. Likewise, we can turn that around. We can have people walk alongside us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they can ask questions. They can bring the truth of Christ to us. And in that sense, Jesus is near. Also, when we break bread together, like we will do in just a minute here, when we serve each other the elements and remind each other of what Christ has done, we also are proclaiming to one another that he indeed is here, that we worship a living God. These are the means of grace, a physical, bodily presence reminding you of his nearness and his truth. And I think we can relate to Cleopas and his buddy because we, when we experience these things, also sense a burning in our hearts.
when we are reminded of how Christ is in a situation, and when we are encouraged by a brother or sister, we experience that burning in our hearts. We know that Jesus is near. We see Jesus in our circumstances, and we are given a new perspective, and we are ready to proclaim that to the world, as we saw in our testimonies. Exactly what happened. The question is, will you see Jesus in your circumstances today? And will you know that he is near? And will you have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And thank you that your word does convict us and encourage us, remind us that you are indeed the risen Savior, that you are the prophesied Messiah, but more so that you are near to us, even when we feel despair, even when we do not know how to interpret our circumstances. Father, we pray that you would give us faith and the courage and the boldness to trust you, to know that you are in it as we walk forward in faith trusting you, not by sight, but by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we will respond to the preaching of God's word in several ways. First, the worship team will come back up and they will lead us in a song as we sing. And second, we will take communion together. Uh, there will be ushers down here at the end of the aisles. And we will do exactly what I just talked about. We will remind each other of the presence of Christ. And we will remind each other that Jesus is indeed Lord and Savior. If you have not made the decision yet to follow Christ, we would ask that you would please refrain. We would ask that uh, you refrain because you would be saying something in action that is not true uh, of your heart. The third way we'll respond is by our giving. Uh, there is a give box out front by the connect table, and we encourage you, if you call Christ City home, to do, to do that. And finally, we will respond also in prayer. Uh, there will be a few people down here by the cross after the gathering, and they would love to pray for you. So let us sing. <laughs>